if your experience is anything like mine, uh, you've heard people using parables to support all manner of strange teachings. I've seen parables appealed to in order uh, to support the idea that entertainment is an important or necessary or valid feature in church. Jesus, after all, we're told, uh, was a great entertainer in the stories he told. I've heard parables used to support doctrines that blatantly contradict the rest of Scripture where it teaches very clearly. Uh, for example, I've heard the story of the prodigal son being uh, used to suggest that there's no need for a blood sacrifice of atonement. Uh, God doesn't have to do that to forgive since the father in the story of the prodigal son doesn't offer a sacrifice before he welcomes home his son. So we're, you know, that just very clearly goes against almost everything, almost every other page, every other thing you look at in Scripture. But nevertheless, I've heard that. I've also been told that parables help us see that as pastors... Uh, we should be telling simple stories rather than giving propositional truths in a sermon uh, since Jesus made his teachings uh, simple and accessible through stories, through use of story. So I don't if you've never, I mean, even if you've never heard any of these things, I'm sure at the very least that you've stood over a parable and you've wondered about it and had questions about it and thought maybe this is, what, you know, what exactly do I make of this? Uh, I'm sure. I think. I, I'm sure most of us have done that. If not all of us have had have wondered, uh, why is he speaking this way? What does this mean? Why not just tell me? Uh, what? Why is he making it? In, putting this into a story. And there's lots of different possibilities. Again, lots of people have different reasons. Was it to keep things light? You know, so so stories. People like that. So he's keeping things light. Uh, was it just to make things simple? You know, people are too. You know, not smart enough or intelligent enough, so we need to just keep it simple. Uh, was it to show us how we should teach and preach other people? Why? Why the parables? Why does he use this method of communication? So we've reached Luke chapter 8, verse 4, and we've come to the parable of the sower. And in many ways, this is the parable of parables. Um, but uh, today, we're not going to get into the parable of the sower uh, in too much detail. Uh, we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10. So in verses 4 to 8, Jesus there gives us the parable. He tells the story of the sower. We'll read it in just a moment. But he tells the story of the, of the sower. And then in verses 11 to 15, he goes on to explain that parable. Uh, but in between, in verses 9 and 10, there's this important section, small as it is, in which he explains why it is that he uses parables in the first place. And so we're going to focus on these verses, which I'm hoping will help serve us as we continue to look at parables through the rest of Luke. Uh, so we have this parable here, and then really the bulk of the parables come a little later in chapters 13 through 16. We'll see a few before that. Um, but here we get a key to understanding the parables and why it is Jesus taught this way. So hopefully this will sort of set us up for future studies of the parables, including next week when we get into uh, the sower in more detail. So in verses 9 to 10, which we'll read in a moment, Jesus gives us the twofold purpose of the parables, two reasons why he taught, taught in that way. Excuse me. The first one is that parables reveal the kingdom of God to disciples. 
Parables reveal the kingdom of God to disciples, aspects of it. Uh, some of the errors just stop here. Some of the, the weird interpretations of it, they just they stop here and they don't even consider any other purpose for this. Uh, then they make a bunch of bad applications. But there's a really important second part to this as well. And that is the second point of the outline, that parables also conceal the kingdom of God to the hard-hearted. So they reveal the kingdom of God to disciples and they conceal the kingdom of God to the hard-hearted. So there's also a negative reason, negative purpose in Jesus using parables. So let's read, and then we'll get into this, starting in verse 4. Luke writes, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, that's Jesus, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And then Jesus goes on in verse 11 and following to explain that particular parable, the parable of the sower, which we'll, we'll cover next time. So there's two reasons, a twofold purpose Jesus uses parables that he gives us here. The first is that parables reveal the kingdom of God to disciples. So after speaking the parable, after telling the story of this sower, uh, in verse 9, we're told that the disciples ask Jesus uh, what this particular one meant. Uh, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, what do, you, what do you mean by this? They're asking about this parable of the sower. Now before we uh, get into that, this in a little more uh, detail, it might be helpful to just get a definition of a parable. Um, so, uh, John MacArthur gives this definition. I think it's helpful. He, he says, to put it as simply as possible, a parable is an illustrative figure of speech made for comparison's sake, and specifically for the purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson. So, a parable is an illustrative figure of speech made for comparison's sake, and specifically for the purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson. So sometimes these parables are long and developed and have many parts and many characters in these parables, but sometimes they're very short and they're very simple. This is not the first parable we've had in the book of Luke. For example, in chapter 5, verse 36 and following, Jesus tells a parable about not putting new wine, not putting new wine into old wineskins, and he does that in order to point out to the Pharisees and to John's disciples the newness of the new covenant that he is bringing about. Uh, the word parable can also sometimes refer to what we would understand to be a proverb. Uh, we saw this in chapter four when Jesus, uh, when he was in Nazareth, told we're, we're, it says he told. Uh, he says, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, that's actually the word parable, the proverb, physician, heal yourself. So physician, heal yourself, 
uh, is called a parable. And of course, we, we understand that's, that's a form of a, a proverb. Um, so they can take various forms, but they're all still illustrative figures of speech made for comparison's sake to teach a spiritual lesson, uh, whether it's short, more proverbial, or whether it's a little more uh, elaborate. So they can take these various forms, but from here on out, primarily, uh, they're, they're going to be a little longer, a little more developed, and, uh, and, and, and they're also going to be more frequent than we've seen so far. And again, as I said, the bulk of them in chapters 13 to 16. So that's what a parable is. The disciples ask about this particular one. What is the meaning of this particular one in verse 9? But before Jesus answers that question, he first explains why it is he uses parables in general, why he uses them at all. And he says in verse 10, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand. So for one group, the reason is negative, so that seeing they may not see, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but for the other group, the reason is positive. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. They, they, they instruct about the kingdom. They give insights into the kingdom. So because they've been granted faith, they've been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, parables serve the disciples by revealing truth about the kingdom to them. So this, for them, they serve an illuminating purpose. They're helpful. And so as I said, parables teach a spiritual lesson. Specifically, we're told here, uh, they teach us about the kingdom of God. They're lessons, they're, they're parables, they're stories that reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God, it says. Now the word uh, translated secrets here is the Greek word mysterion, from which we get our English word mystery. And uh, that's often how it's translated in the New Testament. So if you think of places where you know the Bible talks about mystery, mystery of the kingdom, mystery of the gospel, uh, that's, that's the same word. So in the New Testament, the word mysteries refers to previously hidden or partially hidden truths in the Old Testament that have now been revealed in the New Testament. So they're hidden or partially hidden in the past, but now they've been revealed in the New Testament. They've been revealed by Jesus and, and, by the, and to the apostles and then passed on to us. So Paul often refers to the gospel as the mystery. He talks about the, the mystery of the faith. He's not talking about something that's, un, that's not understandable. It's not talking about something that is beyond all ability to grasp. But he's meaning something that wasn't fully made known in the past, but has now been more fully made known in the present. So in Colossians 1.26, Paul refers to the reality of Christ dwelling in a believer as the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In Ephesians 3 uh, four, I think through nine, this word is used quite a bit, this word mystery. And in verse five, Paul refers to this mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So again, it was hinted at in the past, but, but it wasn't as clear as it is now, as it has been revealed to his, his holy prophets and apostles now in the new covenant, in the New Testament. So, these parables 
for believers, for disciples, for Christians, they give insights into the glorious realities of the kingdom of God. They teach us about this kingdom in which we reside. So they teach us about the Christian faith and about how things work and what we ought to expect as Christians and how things function within the kingdom of God. So that's what, that's what these, these do for believers. Uh, notice also here that Jesus tells his disciples that these insights, these mysteries, these secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. It says, to you has been given, has been granted to know these mysteries, to know these truths. Well, who, who grants this? Who gives this insight? Who, who allows this? Who grants this to them? It's God, clearly. God alone is the one who grants the ability to, to understand these truths, to grasp them, to believe them. And so this is telling us, this is revealing to us that God in his grace has opened the eyes of his disciples, of Jesus' disciples, and has given them spiritual life. That, and this is what enables them to be able to perceive, to be able to understand, to believe these, these things he's teaching. Now, Paul says something similar uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. He says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart these, this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, one must be born again, one must be born of the Spirit, one must be made spiritual, all the same thing, in order to ultimately understand and grasp, believe, the truth about the kingdom of God. Otherwise, left in our sin, we reject it. We will not receive it. A natural man cannot receive these things, Paul says. We must be made spiritual by God. These things are from him so that we might understand. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2, and what Jesus is saying here, it's essentially the same thing. Right? Consistency in what is presented. It's not just a Pauline thing, it's a Bible thing. To the spiritual have been given the ability to understand. And it is given, it is the grace of God that he gives to his elect. In commenting on this verse, John Calvin says this. He says that this statement here, quote, is intended by Christ to exhibit the magnitude of his grace bestowed on his disciples. In having specially received what was not given indiscriminately to all. If it is asked why this privilege was peculiar to the apostles, the reason certainly will not be found in themselves. And Christ, by declaring that it was given to them, excludes all merit. This is a gift they've been shown grace from God. The ability then to understand as spiritual beings. And this gift is given to all believers. If you are born again, you're trusting in Christ, you are spiritual. And this, what this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that every uh, Christian, everyone who's born again, every true believer will, will understand every teaching of Scripture just right away. You know, you just open up the Bible, you read something, and boom, it's just perfect understanding. This doesn't mean that. Uh, this doesn't mean that every time you read a parable, you should just automatically understand it, no problem. That's not what this is saying. Uh, clearly, it's not what this is saying, because the disciples themselves, who he has just said have this gift, 
are, are here asking him for an explanation. So just because you might need to look at it a little further, it doesn't mean you are unspiritual, uh, you haven't been given, you know, you haven't been made new, you're not a Christian. Uh, that's not what this is saying. Even here we see the uh, disciples, they need help understanding. And yet he says to them, they have been given the gift, they have been given the ability to know the truths about the kingdom of God. So what it means then is that the parables, for those with ears to hear, they are for our edification. They're to help our understanding of God's kingdom. As we apply ourselves to understand them, the parables, they will help us further understand this this kingdom to which we belong. And so, just a couple of points of application. First, if, if you're a believer, then I think first we need to stop and just remember that we have received this as a gift from God. That no merit of our own, it, there's, no, there's nothing that we have done ultimately on our own that has caused us to be able to understand these things. Rather, we've been given grace by God. He has awakened us to the truth. He has shown us the truth. He has made us new. He has regenerated us. He has caused us, as Peter says, to be born again. And so, this is, this is just reason to be thankful, to be humble about it, to, 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 to check our pride if we think we're better than somebody else. We're not. It's purely an act of His mercy and grace. And so let this cause us to be humbled and to be thankful to Him. And to be grateful, just to be joyful. Second, um, Dig into the parables. Uh, they're not necessarily obvious at first glance. And, and again, if this is the case to you when you read a parable, don't panic. So maybe you've, you've, you've not been given uh, you know, the secrets to the kingdom of God. Uh, dig in. Again, remember the apostles, the disciples, they needed help too. But rather, as you dig in, go into them with confidence, knowing that they're here for you, for your help for your edification. They're not here uh, for your entertainment to be amused by Jesus and his nice stories. Uh, They're here for your edification, to build you up. Uh, They're insights into his kingdom. And it's true that they have a wonderful uh, way of helping us remember and picture profound truths. Absolutely they do. Uh, So in this way, they absolutely are a great... uh, teaching method that Jesus used to help us, to help his people, great way of us learning and knowing profound truths. So for example, the parable of the sower we'll look at more next week, highlights the various responses to the gospel that we should expect as the gospel goes forth, and it it reminds us to be careful how we listen and how we ourselves have responded. The parable of the persistent widow from Luke 18 reminds us that we should continue to pray and to never give up as we think of this widow who petitioned this evil judge for uh, justice, and finally he gave in. Jesus tells us explicitly it's so that we would pray and and never give up and continue always to pray. That judge would give justice to that woman. How much more does God uh, want to grant requests to his children? So we continue to pray. We can remember this as we think of this parable of the widow. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son, remind us of Christ's mission to seek and to save the lost. 
The joy that there is in heaven when sinners repent and come home. The mission that we have as a church, as Christ's people, to go out into all the world, to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. And so these stories are not just nice things for simpletons and simple people. They instruct us about the kingdom of God and how it operates and how it functions. So dig in. Let's learn about this kingdom. They're not children's stories that we maybe grew out of. They're for our instruction as grown Christians, as adults. So the first purpose of the parable is to reveal the kingdom of God to his disciples. But there's more. Second purpose, the parables conceal the kingdom from the hard-hearted. So look at the middle of verse 10. He says, but for others... They are in parables. That is, the secrets of the kingdom of God. They are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So, for some, the parables reveal truth, but for others, the parables further cloud the truth. In order that, Jesus says, they may not see. So they hear parables with their ears, But the truth that's contained within them about the kingdom of God is not grasped, it's not received. This is the second purpose, and it's a judgment. It's a judgment that keeps people in darkness. This is a difficult difficult thing. It's a difficult truth to grasp, especially uh, for those of us who've grown up accustomed to hearing vague, notions about God's love for everybody, uh, who've been taught a God who, you know, can't handle the thought of being without one human being in his presence, who've been poorly taught about the justice and the judgment of God, who've not been taught about his wrath against sin and against sinners, who've not been taught the sovereignty of God over all things, especially if that's how we've grown up, this can particularly uh, be difficult to hear and difficult to grasp. And just simply as, as fallen human beings, as sinful human beings, this can be difficult. And this purpose of the parables is a sobering reality, as it was a solemn judgment upon some of those who heard Jesus teach. So the question arises, why does he do this? Why would he teach in this way? Why would he have this purpose in his teaching? Why would he make things more difficult for some people? Well, this saying, this verse, of course, should not be understood on its own. It doesn't come to us just divorced from context, immediate context, or the whole book of Luke. There is context. This saying needs to be understood in light of the rejection of Christ that he has already experienced. The rejection that has already come as Jesus has taught. I think this is even even more clear in in Mark and in Matthew, but it's also here in Luke 2. So prior to this occasion, Jesus has taught, uh, and he has given many proofs of who he is, many proofs of his divinity, many clear explanations about who he is. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. Now, there were some 
People wondered exactly what it would look like when the Messiah came. We see his disciples have some misunderstandings. John the Baptist even had some questions about that. Um, but, it, but when he says that he's a son of David, there's no question about what he's saying. He is the Messiah. He is the one the Old Testament prophesies about. He said in Nazareth that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, that he was the one who came, was coming to bring good news. He was the servant from the book of Isaiah who would usher in this new uh, kingdom of God. This is him. He has healed many people of diseases. He has cast out demons. He has raised the dead. He's done all these things that are not uh, ambiguous in any way, and yet he's been rejected. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 34, the people conclude, the Pharisees conclude, that the Son of Man is a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he came eating and drinking. Uh, he wasn't fasting and, and, and going along with the dirge they were demanding of him. Uh, instead, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's a glutton and a drunk. This is, what, this is how they respond to the Lord Jesus who's come. In Matthew and Mark, this parable comes later on the same day. It's a busy day. Later on the same day that he's accused, Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So there, the Pharisees, his opponents, they see what he's doing. They see the miraculous things he's accomplishing. And rather than bowing the knee... You know, the, the, the clear conclusion, this is, he, he's who he claims to be, and I, I should therefore bow the knee and worship him and, and believe in him. Rather than that, they don't even deny his miraculous works. Instead, they just attribute them to his satanic power. Of course, Jesus exposes the folly of this. Satan's not going to cast out Satan. A uh, house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, what you're saying does not even make sense. It's not even logical. But such is the... Uh, the, their blindness, such as their desire to reject this, such as their unbelief. And so as a, as a consequence of this, one of the consequences in Matthew 13, we're told that Jesus spoke in parables because they were hearing but not understanding. And so straightforward talk was replaced for these folks with parables that further obscured things for these people and keeping them in darkness. Again, as MacArthur says, it was a divine judgment against those who met his teaching with scorn, unbelief, or apathy. So again, for those with ears to hear, parables are riches to search out and learn from, but for those who did not have ears to hear, the parables kept the truth concealed and hidden from them. It is a judgment. This pulling away of straight talk. And for those who have no interest, no, no patience to try and search out the meaning of this, they just move on. It was a judgment. Now MacArthur also notes, he's got a book on the parables that's helpful. He also notes in there that even in this judgment, there is a merciful aspect to it. And I think he's right about this, so it's worth sharing. There's a truth in Scripture that the clearer the truth is that one hears and rejects, the greater their condemnation will be at the judgment. So this is, this is clear in Luke 10, verse 12, where we're told it will be more bearable for Sodom, 
Think about that for a moment. It'll be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for those people who rejected Jesus and his messengers that he sent out. Why would that be? Sodom is known for their wickedness. How could this be that these fairly nice, probably Israelite people would be more accountable, things would be more severe for them on the day of judgment? Because they're hearing the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed with clear, straightforward preaching from Jesus and from his disciples. And, and, And not only that, the Messiah, the Lord himself, is there teaching and revealing and sending these people out. And they say, no. I mean, Sodom never had good news preached to them that I know of. Right? Lot was there, but Abraham just went to rescue Lot. They were just left in their sin, and God brought judgment upon them for their sin. These people were guilty in Jesus' day of a great sin as they heard the truth and then rejected it. And so by concealing truth to them, moving forward in parables, MacArthur points out it lessens their guilt because they're not rejecting clear truth any longer. So it's, a, it's slightly less culpable for them if they don't understand, if they don't know, can't clearly see what it is they're rejecting. So even in this judgment, there's an element of mercy, and I think that's, that's true. This idea of God judging unbelievers uh, by further hardening them and giving them over to their sin, it's not found just here. It's found in numerous places throughout the scripture. Uh, In verse 10 here, when when Jesus says, so that uh, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand, he's quoting from Isaiah 6. Uh, Isaiah 6, 6 to 9. And there in Isaiah 6, you'll remember uh, the, the vision Isaiah has of, the, train, of the, the, the Lord, and he's in the temple, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and uh, uh, Isaiah has his sins atoned for, and then he's called to go. He's called to go to the people and to preach to the people. And God makes it clear, right after he calls him, uh, we often stop when God's, who will go for me, here I am, send me. Uh, we often stop there, but then it goes on to say uh, this very thing, that he's going to go out, but his preaching is going to serve the, the, it's going to serve to further harden these people. These people who are already in rebellion against God, they're going to hear this, they're going to reject Isaiah and his teaching, and they're going to be further hardened and not turn and not repent. One thinks of Pharaoh in Exodus, and the Lord says he heart, would harden Pharaoh's heart. So Pharaoh comes face to face with Moses, uh, God's servant. Moses comes, thus saith the Lord. The Lord says, let my people go. And Moses hardens as he hears that. And he says, no way. He won't let them go. And he continues to be hardened until the plagues get worse. And it results in greater judgment. And the firstborn of every family in Egypt dies. One thinks of Roman 1.28, when Paul says how God gave the Gentiles up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So they, the picture there, these are sinful people going their own way, and God hands them over to it, gives them over to it, to do what ought not to be done. And if you think of the, the Old Testament, we see that. 
That's very clear. Paul's just reflecting on what's in the Old Testament. Mankind sins, and God calls Abraham, and he establishes the nation of Israel through them. But, but think of all the other nations that he let go, that he gave over to their sin. 2 Thessalonians 2.11 says, In the last days God will send a great delusion so they may believe what is false. So the Bible is clear. Mankind is sinful and mankind is responsible for his actions, our actions. A sinful man does not do what he does not want to do. So when God hands sinners over to their sin, He's not preventing them from some unbelief that they would otherwise, or some belief that they would otherwise express. He's not preventing them like they want to believe, but he stops them from doing that. That's not what happens. They don't want to believe. They want no part of him. And so he gives them over to that. It's simply his decision not to show them mercy. And with those who refuse to believe what he says whether it was the prophets of old, whether it was Jesus himself or his apostles, or even now as the gospel is shared and proclaimed, with those who refuse to listen, this shows us his patience is not infinite. He is the glorious creator of all. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. And mankind rejects him and refuses his word at their own peril. Some, like Paul, might begin persecuting Christ and his followers only later to be apprehended by the grace of God. However, for others, the result is only judgment. God hands them over to their sin. He's not under obligation to show mercy. When the gospel is proclaimed, when God speaks, it is not a game. It's not a game. Today is the day to respond to Christ. You see here that rejection, unbelief, persistent unbelief, is not a joke. So if you have ears to hear, repent of your sin today. Don't play games with the Almighty. He knows everything. We will not escape. And as was read earlier in the service, repent His call, God's command to mankind. Repent of your sin. Confess it. Cast yourself on the mercy of God. Look to Jesus in faith. Confess your sins to Him. Turn from your unbelief. Trust in His Son. We don't know. We don't know when it will be too late. And we see all over the Bible the urgency of the moment. Hebrews 3 and 4. Today is the day. Now if you're trusting Christ, if the thought of God's judgments and judicial hardening of hearts terrifies you, then I would encourage you and tell you to look again to Christ. 
Is he your only hope? Do you know that? The thought of judgment, the thought of hardening is terrifying. You're aware of your sinfulness. If that terrifies you, look again to Christ. Your only hope. Rest confident. If you've repented of your sin, you're trusting in him, rest confident that he has shed his blood for you, that he will see you through to the end. And if you have that hope, you believe that, it's evidence, you have ears to hear. Remember, some people who are genuine believers in Christ, they hear these kinds of warnings and these kinds of statements and are petrified because they're aware of their sin. They're petrified that perhaps they're not a believer. But just remember, those to whom Jesus says this about, the Pharisees, are, are hardened. They, they, have no, they have no desire to believe. They have, they're not troubled by this in the least. And so if you are troubled by your sin, then take joy in that. The Lord has given you ears to hear. So this, this purpose, the second purpose of the parables, it also shows us that we're not simply, we're not, we're not to teach in this way uh, simply because Jesus did it. Okay, we know we don't do this. We don't do everything Jesus did, right? Nobody here is dying on the cross as a propitiation for anyone else. So just because Jesus did something doesn't mean automatically everybody should do the same thing. Okay, so again, part of their purpose here of these, of these parables is a judgment. And we don't have the authority to administer that judgment. We don't declare who, whom God is saving and not going to save. We, we don't know. That's not for us to decide. This is God's work. This is his to decide. Rather, we are called, like Paul, to proclaim the gospel as clearly as we can, as straightforwardly as we can, and as broadly as we can, which I think the parable of the sower we'll look at next week also shows us. Paul, if you'll remember, told the Corinthians he didn't go to them proclaiming the testimony of God or proclaiming the gospel with lofty speech or wisdom. He's not trying to use fancy words, but he preached Christ crucified in just a straightforward way, as clearly as he could, he preached to them. And he says there, again in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, that to those who were called, or we could say to the ones to whom it was given, the preaching of Christ was the power of God unto salvation. And to others, it proved to be mere folly. Jesus wasn't showing us that people needed short stories instead of propositional truths, that people can't handle that. Yes, it's true that his parables reveal truth to disciples about the kingdom, but the other side of the coin was that they served as a judgment against the hard-hearted, keeping them in their unbelief. And so, in the parables, we see both the mercy and the severity of Christ. He mercifully teaches his truth to disciples. He explains his parables to them, as we'll see next week. But the parables also cast judgment upon those who were hard-hearted and refused to believe, keeping them in their darkness. So there are wonderful riches to be found in the parables, 
but they also give us a reminder that God will not be patient with unbelief forever. Time does run out. And so now is the day of salvation. So if you have ears to hear, do not delay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we tremble at the thought of your judgments. We thank you for pouring out your grace in a grand display of your mercy that we might believe. We ask that you would do this for many more people, many more who are in darkness all around us. May none here delay in getting right with you, young or old. Do not, Lord, let pride or anything else, love of sin, keep us from you. Father, as we study the parables, I pray that we would indeed be those with ears to hear, that we might rejoice in the glory of the kingdom of God to which we belong in faith because of your grace and because of your mercy. So I pray that we would be humbled before you by these realities, that we would remember the weightiness of your word when you speak, that we would be still and quiet before you, that we would make the effort to understand your word, that we would love your word and the things that you say and the things that you command, that as with so many places in the Psalms, that we would rejoice in your word, rejoice in your laws and your commands, that for us who are not trying to keep any command to be justified, but who are trusting in the blood of Christ, that we would just rejoice in being your children and rejoice in the goodness of your word and long to be more like Christ. And we pray you would make us more like Christ. We pray you turn our eyes from worthless things. Help us to delight in your word and to delight ultimately in you. And we thank you for your word that teaches us about you, tells us who you are, instructs us about the kingdom of God. We thank you so much, and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.